Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Miles Davis's version of Scritti Politti's Perfect Way, co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, David Gamson. Best known for Kelly Clarkson's Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You, the two-time Grammy nominee will join us later in the episode to discuss his multifaceted career. Part one. So before we get into our talk with David Gamson, we unfortunately kind of have another in-memoriam segment to do here. Yeah. Lost a couple legends, uh, instrumental legends. Yeah. Who were right. instrumental in the making of some great music. Very clever. Thanks. Uh, but uh, Dick Dale. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah. Dick Dale, kind of the, what do you call him, the father of surf guitar or yeah. the godfather of surf guitar. Yeah. Yeah. The, the guy was like a, a legend of instrumental guitar playing and yeah. certainly mastered that kind of... Uh, whole surf thing back in the day yeah and thanks to quentin tarantino was introduced to a whole uh, new generation of of fans pulp fiction obviously very prominently featuring his music so yep. always nice to see kind of a legacy artist you know get a get it a second wind with another generation yeah kind of a fresh exposure yeah um and then somebody whose uh, whose work was maybe not as obvious in terms of just like a recognizable tone but just who was on everything was Hal Blaine, yeah, um, who kind of had the uh, the sort of unofficial title of most recorded drummer ever, yeah, uh, part of the Wrecking Crew here in L.A. Um, played on everything from you know those uh, early Ronettes recordings, "Be My Baby," um, "Darling Love," "Christmas Baby," "Please Come Home," and then you get into like the Beach Boys and pretty much every hit you think you know for the Beach Boys he was playing on, yeah, um, Carpenters in the '70s, John Denver, uh, Elvis, Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand. I mean, the guy was everywhere, yeah. I think the uh, Ronettes "Be My Baby" uh, that's such a great record. That's yeah. probably in my in my top favorite records of all time, and yeah. also very distinctive kind of that doom, doom, doom. You know, yeah. very distinctive drums. Uh, yeah, that's that's a real loss to the to the music world for sure. Yeah, and and I think you know it's it's one of those things where we, we've talked about this before. I mean, like we interviewed. Paul Williams and we talked to Jimmy Webb and there was a time when like songwriters were kind of famous and, and Hal Blaine was one of those names that I kind of knew even as a kid you know yeah. S- same with like you know Tommy Tedesco I'd heard that name and, and yeah. Carol Kay and I think y- you could actually kind of get a name for yourself as you know a go-to session drummer well, I, I don't think too many like high school kids are walking around talking about the guys that are playing today maybe if they're as nerdy as we were <laughs> maybe. maybe that's no one's that nerdy <laughs> maybe that's the point of connection yeah but yeah. Um, well and you know it, it's it's kind of the the era where everybody thinks that they can do it all themselves yeah. you know because that's true what's uh, and, a drummer you know let's be honest technology has progressed in a way that you can make some like decent sounding uh recordings on your laptop at home yeah. and but there was a time where you know there were full studios and each person had their role and each person was like the expert in doing that thing and so now to shift into our 
uh, <laughs> very commercial sensibilities. Uh, that was pretty good, right? It was. I kind of yeah. see where you're going. You see where now. I'm heading I with this? Do. Yeah. So, you know, you guys have heard us talk before about Pearl Snap Studios, and they are one of our sponsors here on Songcraft. Yep. Well, let's be honest. They are our sponsor they, at yeah. Songcraft. You know, they are they they are very supportive of us. So between you know, this show is made possible by Pearl Snap and our our generous Patreon uh, that's true subscribers and um and Pearl and Snap Chipotle today and Chipotle today. No, I think we were supporting Chipotle. Oh, you're right. Yeah, we just because we ate, that lunch. just because we ate lunch right. there didn't mean they supported us. Um, but uh, yeah, Justin at at Pearl Snap Studios is one of those guys where look, if you are a songwriter, and we know that there's plenty of aspiring songwriters that listen to this show. And and if you're wrestling with GarageBand or Pro Tools or whatever you're wrestling with on yep. your computer, just trying to get something that, that sounds right, you know what? Take a lesson from Hal Blaine. Leave it to the pros. <laughs> let the let the masters yeah. handle, you know, you focus on writing a great song and then let somebody who's really a master at it help you get a, a great demo of it. That's what he does. So, um, yeah, go to PearlSnapStudios.com. And uh, it's the type of thing where they're based in Nashville, but you don't have to be based in Nashville. You can send them the files and they will create a professional demo for you. And if you tell them that Songcraft sent you, you'll even get a deal. Um, so make sure to uh, to chat with Justin and the good people at Pearl Snap Studios if you want to take the next step with your demos today. Part two. So you and I have talked about a lot of things on this show. We have. And typically they're things that don't matter. <laughs> uh, but, you know... When you're talking about songwriting and you're talking about songs and art, we have reached a very, I would say, difficult place in Mm. culture as we watch pop culture figures kind of disappoint us. Yeah. We've seen some like pretty dramatic falls from grace recently. There's this Michael Jackson uh, documentary. Have you seen it? I have not. My wife has seen it. I've read quite a bit about it. Yeah. I've actually not seen it either. Um, I, I, I'm not real eager to see it. Right. Um, I know that it deals with some, I've read enough about it to know that it deals with some pretty serious stuff. Um, but there have been some high profile things recently. Michael Jackson, R. Kelly. Yep. There was a big expose about Ryan Adams yep. um, that just came out and, and some potential allegations about him engaging in inappropriate uh, activity with an underage girl. Right. Um, Nikki Six from Motley Crue. <laughs> big shock that there yeah. would be allegations <laughs> about Motley Crue, but yeah. You know, all of that stuff is, has kind of been at the top of the public discourse and music circles for um, the last few weeks. Yeah. You know, people are talking about this, and the question is: um, Can we separate art from the artist? And yeah. can can we still listen to Michael Jackson? Can we still listen to to R. Kelly? I mean, it's it's uh, it's a big question. And the question gets, it gets difficult and it gets nuanced because, you know, you, you can make a decision, you know, based on what you've just learned about Michael Jackson, or, or I could also argue what we may have known for a while about Michael Jackson. Yeah. Um, but you start pulling that back and then you go, okay, well, what does that mean for, for music produced by Phil Spector? Yeah. Who is convicted of murdering a woman. And I just literally mentioned a few moments ago, Be My Baby, which he produced, which I said was one of my favorite exactly. records of all time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, at, at at what point can you separate the artist from the art? You're driving down the road, you got your windows down, maybe your kids in the car seat singing it with you in the back. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure, wh- you know, where to fall on that because honestly, that, growing up, I would say that I disagreed, you know, uh, ideologically with a 
good number of my favorite artists. Yeah. Um, when it came to issues of faith or when it came, you know, just things like that, I, I became very comfortable with not aligning with my favorite artists. Hmm. Um, you get into different territory here, though, when you're talking about abuse. Yeah. You're talking about crime. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's going to come down to where you have certain fans that are willing to cut certain artists some slack. Yeah. And some artists are not willing to, to cut slack. And, and I think w one thing that is kind of like uncomfortably true is the fact that there is a generational component to this. Huh. You read a book like Hammer of the Gods about Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of wink, wink about underage girls. Yeah. And, and we've sort of come away romanticizing that hmm. as a part of like 70s rock culture. Yeah. Um, well, there's plenty of hit songs about she was 16. Or, there you go. <laughs> you know, whatever. And, and looking through today's lens, it, that stuff certainly seems more inflammatory and more upsetting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some, sometimes you go, well, you know, can you really take today's standards and apply them to something that happened, you know, 40 years ago? Right. But I think any of us would have thought that, you know, underage you know, kids is yeah, reprehensible totally, no yeah. matter what generation you're a part right, of. Right. Right. Yeah. I think where it gets complicated too is do you have a pre existing relationship with the music? Right. So, I mean, we're of the generation where we grew up thinking Michael Jackson was the coolest guy on the face of the earth. Right. Like we grew up listening to, you know, Billie Jean and Thriller and, and we were glued to that stuff yeah. as kids. Um, you know, I remember at Target, I bought the little Michael Jackson set with the sparkly glove and the sparkly yeah. socks, you know, and, and like we thought this guy was was the coolest. Right. So, you know, as opposed to Gary Glitter, who I only kind of know as being a pedophile. Right. You know, um, but even with that, that Gary Glitter song, Rock and Roll. Bum, 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 right. Ba Hey, that's played at sporting events all the time. Right. This guy was arrested for having sex with kids that were 10 and 11 years old. Yeah. And they're playing those, these songs at, at these sporting events. So, you know, for me, it's not hard to be like, yeah, Gary Glitter, forget that guy. Because I didn't have any relationship with Gary Glitter. I found out about him because he's a pedophile. Right. I didn't, I wasn't already a fan of his music. I'm not really particularly a fan of R. Kelly's music. So it's not hard for me to go because I don't have any association with that right. other than attaching it to the person. Right. But you talk about a Michael Jackson and it, it's, oh, it's hard. harder. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you this, man. My my four-year-old daughter loves Michael Jackson yeah. to the point that we put a picture of him up in her little bedroom. Yeah. That picture has come down. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's <laughs> that seems like a foregone conclusion, but yeah. that is one line that we just crossed and said, okay, well, that's, th this does not seem right to have this photo right, up in, right. in my in a child's, child's bedroom. bedroom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, there's probably a part of society that has to keep in mind the fact that these are these are accusations, um, mm. and you know Michael's not here to defend himself. But I also think that we generally have a responsibility as a society to take victims seriously or, or to take accusations seriously. Absolutely. Um, and there's a there's a I don't know there, there's a tremendous amount of credibility to the way um, these accusers are, are presenting themselves. And I think we have to take that responsibility seriously. And I think as music listeners and music fans, we have to think deeply about those things. I don't think we just need to be knee jerk defensive of an artist because we happen to like them. Right. You know, because, again, people are going to disappoint us. Right. Um, we also have to recognize that different people have different levels of comfort. So maybe if someone else is better at separating the art from the artist than we are, it doesn't mean we need to judge them as being some kind of monster or endorsing the behavior right. that that artist, you know, committed. Um, so I think the question of, 
do you still listen to this person or do you not still listen to this person is a pretty individual type of question. I think that, that each person has to come to that on their own, but to echo what, what you said at the end of the day, whether you choose to listen to Michael Jackson or not listen to Michael Jackson, I think the important thing that we need to do is listen to the victims. We need to listen yep. to the well accusers. Said. We need to take the accusers seriously who, who bring up these kind of allegations. Um, and I think for a, a long time, victims have been kind of silenced or pushed aside due to money or fame or yeah. the power of celebrity, whatever. Um, and so I think if we're all willing to first say, yes, I want to, to hear victims, I want to hear accusers, I want to be open to the possibility that maybe even people that I greatly respect might not be what I thought they were, that comes first. Then we kind of answer the question of, okay, can I still enjoy this person's music on, on some level or do I need to just say goodbye? Right. Well said. Yeah. Well, boy, I'm that's glad uh, we worked that out. Got to Yeah. So what, what other problem of the world is, <laughs> do we need to, to bring up next and, and deal with? Uh, I, I think we're going to look at climate change through the lens of songwriting and music production. <laughs> I think we should No a uh, hot button issue there at all. <laughs> <laughs> nice use of the word hot, by the way. You like that? Part three. Two-time Grammy nominee David Gamson established himself as an innovative and influential musician, programmer, and producer with his distinctive synth work and arrangements as a member of the band Scritti Politti. Though classically trained, he gravitated toward the pop, funk, and prog rock influences he absorbed as a teenager, forging his own sound as exemplified by the group's top 10 UK hits, Wood Bees, and the word Girl, as well as their successful US single, Perfect Way. Outside his work with the group, Gamson is best known as the co-writer of Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You, a massive pop hit for Kelly Clarkson that spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop charts in the U.S., hit number one in nearly a dozen other countries, and became one of the best-selling singles of all time. As a producer, programmer, and musician, he has collaborated with Roger Troutman, Michelle and Daggiacello, Maxwell, Angie Stone, George Benson, Nile Rogers, Beth Hart, Michael McDonald, Hans Zimmer, Will I Am, legendary producer Arif Martin, and many others. His songs have been recorded by Miles Davis, Jesse J, Charlie XCX, LP, Luther Vandross, Shaka Khan, Al Jarreau, Sheila E, Adam Lambert, Nicholas Shea, and more. David, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, tell us about your formative years um, in terms of where you grew up and what kinds of musical influences you were listening to as a kid. Okay. Uh, grew up in suburbs of New York. My father was a conductor, so he was like went to Juilliard mm -hmm. and pretty straight, legit right. musician. And um, so he got me into music pretty early. Yeah. And uh, we were a pretty artistic family. My mother was a dancer, so it was like, it was kind of a given. Right. <laughs> and he was amazing. He brought me to 8 million different music classes and lessons, and that was it. That was my entire childhood was like different wow. music studies. So I did violin. I'd study composition and theory. And so I kind of had, you know, a quote-unquote classical yeah. background. But what I really listened to... Like, I did all of that almost for his benefit. What I really listened to was pop music. Right. And hmm. so, like, I'd come home from school, and I was, like, crazy into um, all sorts of weird prog rock in my teens. Right. Very, 
weird European stuff from France and Italy. <laughs> and well, you, the weirder, the better. You, right. you probably wanted a, a certain level of complexity if what you've yes. been raised on was True. just, you know. You know I did sort stuff. of value that um, sort of technical proficiency at right. that point in my life. I think later I started to feel like that was, um, I kind of disowned all that by the right. time I got to college. But in my high school years, yeah, that kind of technical mm. proficiency was still something that really appealed to me. But I still like pop music. And so in all that was still like, I still love the Beatles and I still love the Jackson 5. But somehow I, st- I got really into like this weird very technical <laughs> right. prog rock stuff. Like, so, like Genesis prog rock? Or I like love more... Genesis, yeah. But there was like, that was still too mainstream. Uh, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Lamb lies down on Broadway. They sold out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one I still love. After that, they sold out. <laughs> um, so uh, what? how did your dad sort of look at that? Did he think, oh, you're wasting your time with this pop music or, or was he pretty uh, open-minded? Um... I think he made an attempt to like it for his son's benefit, but I don't think he ever really got it. And I think he really wanted me to be like a composer, a classical composer. Because in my teens, I decided I was like that was something I really wanted to do is be a composer. Hmm. So, um, you know, he took me to all these composition lessons and stuff, and I went to like Manhattan School of Music prep for composition, and but. What I wanted to do was do pop music, really. Right, right, so. right. Well, in 1981, you released a cover of the classic Jeff Berry, Andy Kim song, Sugar, Sugar, yes. the, the the Archies, um, under the name Learner's Permit. And that actually came out on, on Atlantic Records, I believe. Like, yeah, how ri- did that... the original original <laughs> yeah. of that was actually, it was just like, it was a David Gamson single on Rough Trade. Okay. Well, um, so... In the UK? Yes. Okay. And then Atlantic... That, you know, at that time, um, Atlantic was just picking stuff up and doing singles deals. I see. And so Atlantic just picked up this Rough Trade record. Yeah. Um, and then I decided to call it Learners Permit, but it was it was the same record. Yeah. Um, so how, he, how did that? I mean, you were like a college kid, right? Yeah. How did that opportunity kind of present itself? Um, the way that presented itself was my buddy, uh, Fred Marr, who later became sort of one of the three of us in Scritty Politi, um, he was in a band called Material, mm-hmm. which was this, this very hip downtown band in New York that I loved. And anyway, he had a connection with Z Records, which was this guy, Michael Zilka. And I got to, I called, cold called Michael Zilka and got him on the phone and he kind of said, like, I'm busy, call me. If I have time, you can come down. And mm-hmm. I called him a bunch of times from my <laughs> dorm. Right. <laughs> and he said, come on down. I have a little time. And I ran down to New York and played him some stuff. And one of them was this sugar, sugar thing. Yeah. And he was like, I like this. It's cool. It's a little cute for me. Hmm. Uh but I think you got something here, and he paid for me to do a bunch more demos. Uh. And one of the times I came into the office, Jeff Travis was there, who was basically ran Rough Trade at that mm-hmm. point. And Zilka said, remember that cute thing you played me? Give that to Jeff. He likes cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave it to Jeff, and he called me like the next day. I was like, I love this. I want to put this out. Wow. <laughs> so... Um, 
Yeah, you gave me a whopping $250 to finish it. <laughs> right. Like, strangely, I feel encouraged and demeaned at the same time. <laughs> yes. That's kind of the story of my life. <laughs> um, That's well, kind you... of the music business in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take the encouraged part. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, you mentioned Scritti Politti, and that's kind of where you made your, your first major musical mark, uh, songwriting, synth work, programming. Um, talk about how you first got involved in that project. Well, it was through Jeff Travis. So it was that original sugar, sugar thing that I right. actually did at home. My father had, my father did get into electronic music, mm -hmm. and so he had an ARP 2600. Okay. Um, and he would go on Saturdays to Queens College where they had a modular Moog and a Buchla. So he was, like, really into it. And that was kind of in the house. Yeah. And he had, like, a four-track in the house. Wow. So I was introduced to, like, multi-track recording pretty early, like, in my te early teens. Wow. And that concept. Wow. So, and I was doing little demos at home with four-track recording. Where you'd take you do three tracks and bounce it to one and then yeah. do another three tracks and did you know that you were kind of on the forefront of of things at that time? I mean, because there's a lot of changes happening in music. You know, yeah. we're talking about the early '80s. Though. Yes, a lot. Um, I don't know. I just was. Tr I wasn't super proficient um, player, and I there was so there was a lot of things that I want. I had a lot of stuff in my head, so I would come up with techniques with the multi-track recording to kind of do the stuff that was in my head which was maybe a little ahead of where the technology was yeah. so like a lot of the stuff i was doing i was playing at half speed down an octave and then like almost all of that sugar sugar everything was played at half speed wow because hmm. i wanted it to sound like a machine right yeah. so like early on i did want stuff to sound like some version of a sequencer before there were like MIDI sequencers. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah I kind of was looking for that technology before it appeared, but it, right. then it appeared luckily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's funny to think work. like if you were born 10 years earlier yeah, and that technology didn't exist, you know, it, it, because it obviously played such a central role in your musical formation. Yes, it did. But I maybe all the records that I liked and gravitated to were kind of moving in that direction because mm -hmm. it was always those records that, whether it was like Gary Wright's Dreamweaver or something, right. it, which was like, and he was member. I don't know. This was probably was before your time, but he was touring with like an all keyboard band. Yeah, we, we right. just interviewed Gary. Yeah, he's oh, been on the I show. worked with Gary. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. we redid awesome. Dreamweaver for Wayne's World. Oh right. <laughs> um. But yeah, so like those, I loved that record, yeah. and it was so there was and Kraftwerk, yeah. and so there was a lot of records, even though a lot of that wasn't sequenced, but it was moving towards that, yeah. and those were the records that aesthetically like appealed to me. So I think it, everybody was kind of yeah. it was in the air. Yeah, yeah. Not to chase a rabbit here, but the version of Dreamweaver in Wayne's World I never realized was a like a recreation. Yeah, I know. It's so really that wasn't close. the original record? It's really close, yeah. And so you produced that? Yeah, we, we wow. did that together, yeah. <laughs> was that a That's master amazing. ownership decision in terms of like um, the fee for the, the sync fee or whatever? I mean, I think the idea originally was to do a, 
a newer version and I was so in love with that record <laughs> that we ended up just making the same record. Right. That's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> like, here's the new version. Yeah. Sounds just like the amazing one. <laughs> um, well, speaking of getting to work with your heroes, I understand you guys did some work with Nile Rogers like pretty early on with, with the yes. group. Um, talk about that experience a little bit. Um, we had done a song called Small Talk, which later was on Cupid and Psyche. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was like one of the first things that Green and I worked on together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it went on forever. And that was during a period where he was m- going to maybe leave Rough Trade because everything started getting more massive production and more expensive right. and stuff. And I think in an effort to try to make it all work at Rough Trade. Uh, anyway, they talked about Nile doing a remix. Mm-hmm. So, because it went on in a million different ways and we couldn't really put it all together. And Nile did like a basically a remix where he just went through the stuff and kind of decided what should be in and what shouldn't be in. And, right. Um, and it was one of the biggest learning experiences in my life which is because i just basically sat in the back of the room and watched Mm -hmm. and and watched what he decided was in and what was out and it was actually one of the few times where you get on got into the studio with a hero and it was like they actually were everything you (laughs) hoped they would be be. right right (laughs) (laughs) like he was cool he knew what he was doing yeah like I, it was a really great learning experience for me. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's wow. incredible. Um, well, you had your first real hit as a songwriter in the UK when Scritti Politti's "The Word Girl" hit the top ten there in uh, 1985, followed shortly thereafter by "Perfect Way," which climbed to number eleven on the Billboard pop chart here in the US. But both songs emerged from that first album that you did with the group. Um, talk about the the writing process specifically for that record, and um, and kind of the role that that technology, as you know, we were talking about, kind of played in in the shaping of that record. Okay, uh, that's actually interesting because that record spanned pre MIDI, post MIDI. Uh-huh. So hmm. the beginning of that record, we did three songs with that were produced by Arif Martin. Mm-hmm. And um, I had done uh, these arrangements that we had done as demos. That was a re- that's what they kind of shopped as a deal. Right. And then Arif was going to produce, and I just figured like, Ugh, that's the end of me on this. <laughs> and Arif was like the coolest. Mm. Called me up and was like, "What are you doing? Why are you down here? I'm not changing anything. I want to do all these arrangements." Yeah. And um, and I, he asked me to notate every part, Jeez. Wow. <laughs> including the drum part. Right. Fortunately, so we, you were raised by a classical conductor. And <laughs> but it's the it. only one and only time I've ever done that. <laughs> so, yeah, we literally wrote out the drum parts. Wow. Um, which Steve Ferroni, like, read the drum parts. Right. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> so, anyway, so the first that first three songs that we did with Arif were right on the cusp before MIDI. Uh-huh. 
So, because I think we started that record in like 83 or 84. Like, mm. it took a really, it was over a long period of time because yeah. they released a few singles and we'd go back in. Yeah. So, um, some of those songs were, I was actually more like, uh, I always thought of myself earlier as more of a producer arranger mm. rather than a songwriter. And Green did have these songs. Right. Um, like, Woodbees and Absolute that were kind of, written as guitar almost country western hmm. songs yeah and then i just compl- just basically lifted the melody and put them on these tracks which i did at home on the four track hmm. uh and playing a lot of stuff at half speed and stuff yeah. like that right so right. and reharmonized them hmm. um and that was kind of what the demos were but yeah. then later midi came along and I had like an MSQ 700, which was I think the first MIDI sequencer by Roland. And then we started programming everything. And then you could like play with it as you go because you had a sequencer and you could change things. And you didn't mm-hmm. have to d- put stuff on tape. Yeah, yeah. So that freed up stuff a lot. Yeah, it's so. interesting because you're like you're you're learning how to operate new technology totally as you're creating totally. songs. It's so totally. it's got a sort of you're sort of. Probably there were a couple kinda... of, like happy accidents too. Like yeah. there's a couple of drum breaks that were like, I remember, that were very signature little drum breaks in the thing that were accidents that because we programmed the thing wrong, or, <laughs> you know. Right. Like also something you don't think about, but in those days there was no way to punch in a part in the chorus. You'd have to start with a if you were syncing a sequencer to tape, you had to start from bar one. Hmm. Right. So if you had like a part that happened in the last chorus, you still have to sit there for two and a half minutes. Right. Well, while Gritty Plitty was perhaps like your central creative outlet in the 1980s, you began finding success with other artists' recordings of your songs, uh, including Shaka Khan's Love of a Lifetime, uh, which was a top 20 R&B single. How did that one come about? Arif. Because hmm. uh, the the common thread there was, you know, Arif had produced all of the Shaka stuff. Hmm. And we were, I think um, the Shaka stuff was what made Green really want to work with Arif, apart from Aretha. Um, and I was a humongous Shaka Khan fan. I love those records that Arif did with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was definitely the connection. And also she was on Warner Brothers yeah. and Scritty was Warner Brothers and we had a lot of support at Warner Brothers too. Yeah. Yeah. So, Made sense for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and around that same time Al Jarreau recorded Ella's for Lover and, yes. and made that the title track of his 1988 album and that that record was produced by Nile, Nile Rodgers so that yeah. was a similar kind of thing where Nile brought the song to him or was that that kind of um I'm pretty sure that was through Michael Austin, who was at Warner's. Mm. So that was also the Warner connection, because Michael was always a big supporter, and Michael was also very close with Niall. Yeah. Um, so I think Michael might have pitched that over there. Yeah. That song existed from, like, that earlier, way earlier period. Yeah. From, like, when we did actually do the work with Niall, like, on Small Talk and stuff. So that song had been kind of sitting around for a while. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, 
Isn't that always great when a song that's been sitting around for a bit? It's the finds... really interesting thing about <laughs> publishing. You just never know. There's yeah. so many instances where some song will sit for three or four or five years or even more, and suddenly somebody takes an interest in it. I mean, it's yeah. so yeah, interesting. Well, Scritti Politi's second album, Provision, was released in 1988, and that featured the song Oh Patty, which went to number 13 on the UK pop chart, and featured Miles Davis on trumpet. Must have been a trip. Um, I, I would love to hear, like, just <laughs> just what that even did to your mind. Saying Miles Davis is on our stuff. <laughs> well, but what preceded that was Miles Davis actually did a cover of "Perfect Way" on the Tutu record. I mean, mm-hmm. come on, which was that That's was pretty mind blowing. Yeah, right. Which it was just so completely out of the blue. It and apparently it was just this. He just took a liking to, like, I don't know where he heard it somewhere along the line, but... And that has to be a validation. You're like, we've been trying oh, to make progressive yeah. stuff, and the guy who made Bitches Brew <laughs> thinks right? that our stuff is worth covering. Yeah. No, so apparently pretty... we hit the progressive button right in the center of the bullseye. You did it, right. you know? Yeah. It, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, and the session he came down to was, like, it was definitely... A lifetime memory, you know, it was just a, it was an amazing moment. And, w- and then we went down to his place at the Essex house and like hung out with him and did like a photo shoot with him. And he was like, he was really cool to us. That's wow. awesome. So yeah, he was super supportive and yeah, he really liked the stuff. And then he like, he would call, he'd have, you'd answer your phone and be like, Mr. Davis would like to speak to you. <laughs> Drop everything. Right. <laughs> and okay. he, I think he called Green as well. He was trying to get like a scritty song for like an up, like just to write him some stuff because yeah. I think he wanted to do more pop stuff. Wow. Um, and I was like, God, I really didn't know what to do. I played him <laughs> some stuff on the phone that he was positive about, but I just was, I just had a hard time finishing or figuring out what to do. I was just too intimidating. Yeah. Right, right. Pressure. <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> Mr. Davis. <laughs> I think one thing that young creators don't necessarily know yet, aren't armed with this knowledge, is that their heroes always want their finger on the pulse of what's coming next. Yeah. You know, people that, that, uh, you know, if if you are making music that's at the forefront, you, you're always wanting to see what's coming next. Yeah, well, um, for sure, Miles was yeah. always like that. Yeah, yeah. He was so open too. Like, we just sat and listened to a bunch of music with him, and he was so, he was always listening to everything that was coming out. Yeah, and not competitively, you know, like more like as an open. He's like a sponge. Yeah, almost. totally. Which oh. is it's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um. Boom! There she was. Was the only single from the Provision album, the, the follow-up record, yeah, which, um, that that charted in the U.S. Barely, and, yeah, <laughs> in the fifties, I think. Um, but the group disbanded for you know a, a good long while after that. Um, from a creative standpoint, what kind of led to the dissolution of that period in your life? Uh, that set. Well, both records just took an incredible amount of time and energy. And that second record, which was Provision, um, by, certainly by the time it ended, it, the fun had 
completely gone out huh. uh, and we had just been in a room with each other for way way too long <laughs> right. and it was just um it just it just went on way too long and yeah. it was just it i think you can hear it in the record too it's just sounds like there's no fun left in it mm-hmm. you know that i think cuban psyche still sounds like we were discovering something yeah and provision feels like it just got set and uh. it's just it feels really kind of dead I, I still have a hard time listening to that record yeah yeah now is it true that you guys never actually performed live like it was a complete studio yeah that's true wow. yeah yeah that was never appealing to me yeah <laughs> <laughs> would it have been like impossible like with the things you were trying to do in the studio to try to it would have been impossible them. for me <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody but yeah i don't think i could I, we did we actually did rehearse in cupid and psyche for like three days where we were in new york and because there was supposed to be a tour yeah right and after a few days of like you're just like Mm-mm. yeah <laughs> I, none of us were into it right and I just, you know, my whole reason for even making records was not to go play live. My reason was to go make records. Yeah. So right. That's what right. I like doing. So. Yeah. yeah. I bet the label was excited about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they weren't too <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> it's so funny because it's like, it never, I was so in my own little world, I didn't realize that was even like a, a big issue. Right. Yeah. Like, I was like live <laughs> hey, we made the record what do you want exactly <laughs> like that was not even on my radar at all like is this the first interview you've done <laughs> i'm not doing any press not... <laughs> right. the mysterious we're David finally Gibson. doing the interviews for the provision record. <laughs> right. this is the promo tour 2019 <laughs> um, well, speaking re- of which it was all those promo tours that was the other reason why we probably didn't <laughs> that's enough because that was just <laughs> right i think the other problem was if you're not playing live and all you're doing is promo uh-huh that's just soul crushing yeah. yeah no outlet yeah right so and so we on cuban psyche we, we actually toured the world on a promo tour wow Ish. and that is just horrible <laughs> yeah, it's right. glad handing and yeah and it's like the same interview over and over right. and over yeah. and over right. again the rock star life without any of the rock star life. Exactly. Parts. At least if you're playing live, it's like you got some outlet, right. yeah. some some reason right. to be doing it. Well, that's true. You hear bands say, "Man, the best part of best part of the day is that hour and a half or whatever we get on stage and play." Right. Like, I can imagine that would make that. it worth it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but like going around the world lip syncing, right. <laughs> it's, it's somehow not creative. It's definitely fulfilling. a sexless marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> Um, well, around the time that you guys were making that record, you co-wrote a couple songs with Luther Vandross um, that appeared on his Any Love album, Come yeah. Back, and I Know You Want To. So much of your writing is also material that you produced, but on this record it was produced by Luther and Marcus Miller. Yep. And I'm also imagining that you were beginning to think of yourself as a songwriter by this point, if you're writing kind of in that context. 
Yes. It was always... I still kind of felt like my focus was being a producer. Right. Um, but those track like, so I did, I, that connection was through Ray Bardani, who was an engineer who engineered a lot of the Scritti stuff, but he also engineered all the Luther stuff at that time. And we used Marcus. So there was some, and some of the musicians that played with Luther also had been on the Scritti record. So there was some connection there. Um, and I just gave Luther a couple of tracks to write. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I think Luther wrote most of the time at that, yeah. at least at that time, was, like, I think Marcus, too, would just give him tracks, and yeah. he would write mm. over the tracks. Okay. So it wasn't very collaborative. Right. Like, it was literally, like, I gave him... One was actually a completed song that I gave him, mm-hmm. which he used maybe a tiny fraction of and then wrote a whole new song. He Lutherized mm-hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one was just a track that he wrote too. And so and then I actually get, came down to the studio and gave him all of my sequences and sounds mm-hmm. and stuff. So that was like the basis of what they worked from. Yeah. And then um and then Marcus kind of embellished from there. Yeah. It's interesting because I I think of um you know this idea of like a top liner and a track person and all that. I think of that as like being this really kind of modern development but the more we talk to writers you know you hear yeah Yeah. and and that and too almost like for my taste it was that it's too much like i don't particularly like that i like to collaborate yeah so to me it was you know i just i gave them a track and right and then something happened i literally i didn't know about it till they were cutting it right wow right so i never heard about it i never heard back like yeah i like these nothing right (laughs) right no feedback (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even like with Smokey Robinson, uh, what was it Tracks My Tears uh, or Tears of a Clown? Stevie had the He was the talking intro. about Stevie Wonder and and Henry Cosby wrote. They did they did the whole track of Tears of a Clown, and then Smokey wrote the music. And you, you just don't think of you think of that as did being such a modern writers? thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they, they did. did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you think of that being like this real modern thing of people working separately. But I get right. the, because the I feel like what ha- what's changed in modernity is that. Um, <laughs> people tend to get a share of the song now, which they didn't. Right. Like, I mean, even in, like, I could even use my early arrangements of the Scritti stuff mm-hmm. on some of that stuff where I just changed, like, I didn't get writer's credit on yeah. I was yeah. called the arranger, right. which nowadays, Oh, you're, never. you're certainly a writer at that yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, like, I completely changed the chords. Right. Like, it was nothing, it was the top line stayed. Yeah. But, in the, right. but when I started, it was still... Lyrics were 50, melody was 50. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> no. Yeah. So in some ways, I feel like it's fairer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now it's to the point where like, oh, well, this guy came and delivered the pizza and we didn't have tip money, so <laughs> yeah. let's give him 1.8%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I, well, but also the guy like that... the guy who played one hooky little thing right. back in the day right. would have gotten a would've session got fee. Yeah, yeah. So Like is is Pretty Woman, Pretty Woman without the guitar lick? You know, right, right. you do get into... Um, and I, I know ask... like some of the older folk on my Facebook feed are constantly complaining about how there's so many writers on a song and I I, right. I feel like in some ways it is fairer. Right. So Well yeah. that's the way they're being made now. Yeah. You know, they're not just looking for writers to put on the song. They're they're being brought in piecemeal. So right. And like also it's because it. it's just a function of the way budgets work now and yeah. 
people aren't getting paid session fees, and right. so people have to get some right. compensation where yeah. they can. Yeah, yeah. Well, as the 1990s dawned, uh, you became a staff producer for Warner Brothers Records, and you were working with like Roger Troutman of Zap, Shaka Khan, Sheila E., George Benson, and Michelle Indegicello, whose first two albums were Grammy nominated, um, and you were really wearing the producer hat. Um, rather than the than the songwriter hat necessarily, but um, as a songwriter, and maybe that kind of gets into exactly what we were just talking about in terms of arranging and things, but as a songwriter, what sensibilities do you bring to the production process to attempt to kind of draw the best out of an artist when you're not necessarily, you know, the artist yourself or, or not necessarily the, the person whose name is up front as a, as a songwriter? Um, I just think it's musicality, but I that was sort of the pinnacle of me thinking, okay, I'm going to be a producer. Hmm. I'm going to put the song. I'm, this songwriting is not going to be the focus. Huh. Producing is going to be the focus. And the Michelle stuff. In that, I I just tried to subvert my own sound because huh. I those are some of the records where I feel like it doesn't necessarily sound like me. Right. Which is also. I was consciously trying to do that because mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I got so tied into that scritty sound yeah. that by the time I got to doing, I had a like an amazing love for R&B music, and so I really tried to do move a little away from doing pop stuff and doing yeah. R&B stuff. And I really with Michelle stuff, she has such an identifiable sound, and it was always there that all I was trying to do was like help her to make her record better yeah and not get in the way with my own so i didn't play i basically programmed drums on that but i don't think i played it like mm. anything well wow. so um and it's not i tried to not make it sound like it was super programmed even right. though everything is programmed on that mm -hmm. or even because even the live stuff is all chopped up and mm. put together yeah but i tried to really hard not to make it sound like huh. it was like that yeah yeah <laughs> well, in that same era, you worked with Angie Stone, and you played on one of my favorite albums, uh, Maxwell's Urban Hangs. Mm. Um, that was like through the Michelle stuff was my connection through to Maxwell. I mean, and I again, actually hooked him up with, like it was Wawa Watson that I had uh, used on Michelle that I connected with Maxwell. And, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they just had this really great connection because of the Marvin Gaye stuff. And, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, that that record's amazing. I'm just, I still go back to it and listen to it all the time. And, and again, something that you know that neo soul stuff was leaning on like organic things. Yeah. Um, and I got I, that period. I just absolutely fell in love with the sound that super dead, yeah. tight early '70s sound. And I went to great lengths. To I mean, I got the engineers. <laughs> yeah. I went to those studios. I like went crazy trying to recreate that feeling. Wow. Of when it, it, it really, I mean, it, it paints a picture, you know, whether, whether you're writing the songs on these projects or not, it paints a really complete picture of a creative, though, because you're, you know, you're stretching and reaching for different things than what you've done before and, and finding yourself in the center of a completely different sound and making it your own. And it seems like that's a little bit of a, a hallmark of the changes in your career and what's allowed you to stay relevant. Stay working. Uh Yeah, I just think I got, I get. I keep wanting to keep myself interested <laughs> right. mm -hmm. and not get pigeonholed. Right. So, and I also, you just keep wanting to make yourself relevant right. or stay relevant. So, 
And I guess if you're not writing the song, you're always serving the song. Yes. One of the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely always, like, trying to keep myself moving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess if you, you when you find initial success with one particular thing, then people want to sort of put you in that corner and be like, well, that's his thing. You're like, well, no, that's just the thing that you met me with. But yes. I've got all these other 100%. sides to, to my musical personality. And, and I understand you actually worked with the team that scored Mission Impossible 2, yeah. which is com- which is a whole other sort of thing. T- talk about that kind of experience and how that stretched you. That was through my buddy Oliver Lieber, who's actually Jerry Lieber's yeah. son. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had... There were, like, multiple rooms at Hans's place, mm-hmm. and he would kind of hand off different ideas, and everybody would kind of embellish in different ways. Yeah. And so we were just – we were in one of those rooms. It was very, very fun Yeah. Um, just to work on a project that's huge budget like that, and, mm-hmm. and it was just a lot. It was super fun. Yeah, yeah. But, it, yeah, I, I love doing it. I would do that in a, in a second – Again, yeah. it was it was really fun, and it's like a completely different part of your brain than working on songs. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah. Well, and now to another part of your brain. Kesha's 2010 debut album, Animal, featured a couple songs that were collaborations with you, Backstabber and Steven. huge record um how'd you get involved in that one um actually i think it eh, sort of through a friend and oliver actually lever was also working with her at a certain point she she was i think maybe 19 when i met her and she had been signed to luke but they were kind of estranged for a couple years mm-hmm. where she was kind of floating around la and working with different writers and kind of um, experimenting with coming up with a sound. And she had been doing more like a rock, like almost like Avril Lavigne kind of thing. And then she moved towards doing much more electronic-y, that kind of program sound. So we did a bunch of stuff that was kind of, I think, laid the groundwork for that direction. Right. And a couple of those things survived, like Backstabber. which had done really gotten pretty good numbers on what was then her MySpace page. Uh, wow. <laughs> Market research, man. <laughs> RIP MySpace. Yeah, focus group. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's something to be said for the timing of when you get involved in a project, too. You know, you could be like, man, I, I wrote 10 songs in the rock years, but you know, she really came into this well, they hope there's that. I don't know who came up with it, but somebody always said, first one in, first one out." <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, man. first for if you're like a songwriter on a project. Yes. Right. 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 Oh, we found great success with this thing you did. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, you really kind of don't want to be in too early. No, <laughs> right? no. Got to find the sweet spot. Yeah, you, you get a nice photo. <laughs> and she, I think Kesha had. Like, once she locked into what she was doing, she had a really clear vision uh, sonically. Like, she didn't want any guitars. Huh. And, like, just her taste was so specific, and her whole personality was just led you, and her writing is just really, really good. Huh. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. Like great writer. That's cool. Yeah. Fellow Nashville native. Yep. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I can't really think of any other uh, hit songs of yours that we haven't... Oh, wait. (laughs) Um, Well, obviously, without a doubt, your biggest hit to date is uh, Kelly Clarkson's Stronger, which hit number one in the pop chart. Still an absolute staple. It's one of those songs you, you hear all over the place. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I understand that song wasn't necessarily originally intended for for Kelly. Tell us kind of about the the journey that that song took to becoming you know what we know it as today. Yeah, that was that, to me. That's like the most classic in the songwriter world, which was it was literally like a songwriting session mm-hmm. with three people who got together for whatever three or four hours and wrote a song. And it, we originally did write it for it was a Leona Lewis pitch, mm. um, and it was so it was a very different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody liked the song, and it kind of just had a life of its own. And then Greg Kirsten ended up producing it and changed the track around a lot. Yeah, um, and it kind of they made it much more like a up tempo kind of thing because mm-hmm. it was more like a more like a ballad originally huh. so uh but it was really like a classic songwriter session right. pitched song right wow yeah the old way yeah totally the old <laughs> way and it's like it really was one of the rare cases where the song was written in maybe 3 4 hours mm. we demoed it and it just had, that was like it's pretty rare that that happens like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, I mean, at that point, you're already a guy that's got a name, you've got a career, you've got connections, you've worked on high-profile projects. I'm imagining, though, that a number one like that still represented a change. Uh, again, validation. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't hurt. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised. Really? Yeah. I... I was saying this the other day. It's like in the 35 plus years that I've been doing this, at least personally, I've never had a point at which I thought this is easy. (laughs) And even then, it wasn't like it it changed a lot for me. Hmm. It still is like every, it's always still a fight. Right. Um, Also, I think I am somewhat fighting against it's a young person's business and I am now getting older, but, um, I don't feel it, but, (laughs) but I feel like there's a perception of that. Um, so at any rate, I don't know. It didn't change things that much. Really? Yeah. For me. Yeah. Like career wise. He was supposed to have gotten a check. (laughs) It changed that. (laughs) Let's look into that. There's been an oversight. (laughs) Yeah. Other than my, you know, my bank account. Yeah. 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 But it didn't, like, it was also somewhat out of what my lane was as a record. Now, Mm -hmm. here's a question for you. If it had happened at age 25. I do feel like it would have been different. 
do you think it would have been uh, like just personally a, a positive change? Do you feel like at 25 you would have been ready to handle the success of a song like that? Do you feel like there's some, you know, just like cosmic provision in the fact that you're like a mature man with your feet underneath you and now you get handed a number one? Um, I think it, I think it might have affected, um, might have had a different effect on my career mm. and maybe where I was looking to go right. from there because that would have, I would have chased that more. Right. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But I do like to me that record was a little bit like just based on everything else I'd done. Like it was a pretty straight down the line Kelly Clarkson record that I love. Yeah. But it wasn't like some. I don't know that I do would be able to do right. that so well. Right, right. So that's one of those records I don't listen to pop radio at all. And that's one of those records where I can sing the chorus for you, which. <laughs> Which it's a great speaks melody. to the like absolute like the penetration of that song is just That's everybody knows melody. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I don't know if you know Jurgen Ellison, who you mm-hmm. know was one of the writers, but he's like a kind of a legendary Swedish writer, and right. he's just to me everything that comes out of his mouth is like this anthemic, <laughs> right. amazing <laughs> Swedish, right? Yeah, like. <laughs> He just has like this amazing gift for Mel. Like just every, I'm, every time I'm in the room with him, I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> just keep the voice memo app rolling all the time. <laughs> I just love everything he does, and it's like those kind of melodies. He's just amazing at right. Wow. Yeah. So, um, well, in recent years, you've worked on songs like "Ain't Been Done," the the lead track from Jesse J's "Sweet Talker" album, and uh, "Fembot," a track from Charlie XCX's "Pop 2 mixtape. And um, these projects are both, you know, speaking of, of writer and producer credits, I mean, you look at, at these projects and they are just packed with a ton of writers, producers, guest artists. I mean, when you look at the credits on some of these records, um, as opposed to maybe a record from like 20 years ago, the cast of characters is just, yes. you know, Well, I- particularly enormous. that Charlie record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of your just day-to-day functioning as a songwriter and producer, um, I would imagine that there's just a lot more hands and and a lot more ideas and and personalities in the mix on some of these projects than maybe, you know, several years ago. I mean, how have you kind of adapted your own working style? Good question. Because I even feel like it's harder to even pitch. Like now it's almost like as a pitch, people are just pitching super pared down hmm. not very produced even for pop records to leave because, room for other people to yes, come in <laughs> to right. come in uh which is really hard for me because I'm like more like a producer I mm. still feel like I'm more of a producer than a songwriter to me I still yeah. feel like that yeah um so like the fun part of it to me is still putting it together and messing with it and coming up with a track and right. all of that but yeah so I have to kind of if it's a pitch I'm almost always do some stripped down version right. to allow yeah. somebody else yeah. to come in. Yeah. And it does, it does end up being m- more of a collaboration on more of the different elements than right. Right. it used to be for sure. Yeah. The Jesse J one was actually, that was actually another one where it was just a pitch hmm. and nothing, the track ended up being pretty much exactly the same as the demo. That was like, it was really the same as the demo. Yeah. But she just did, 
another vocal when we changed the key. But yeah. that was really much the same. Uh, I would imagine that, that there's a degree to which you have to to allow yourself to be pretty flexible. You know, that uh, if I create this track, somebody else might be brought in and and add something to it, and I might not have any control over that. Yes, you have to be somewhat egoless. <laughs> right. It's a constant daily challenge. Right. <laughs> well, the thing you don't have to worry about is are they going to put all of these collaborators in a van somewhere and go on a promo tour? <laughs> and you'll have to go spend a year together not right. playing shows. And right. that's I don't have to worry yeah. about that. No one's going to ask me to do that. <laughs> Very cool. Well, David, thank you so yeah, much thank you. For, for doing this. And I wish our listeners could uh, could smell the rich lavender smell in here <laughs> that is so relaxing. I'm like, I'm ready to take a nap. I'm just like, it's so, so calm and chill in here. This it's is a great to cover the garlic smell that's coming, coming from, from the, from the, the cafe store. next door. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad it worked. If you wouldn't mind just giving us some time, Scott's going to give me a massage. But this has been fun. Thanks for, right, thanks thank for you. doing it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.